Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. I'm very hot. (laughs) (laughs) That's mainly how I am. And I was giggling when we logged on because our last show, we were complaining about how cold and wet and crap the summer had been. And I don't know if I said it, but I, I internally wished for a warm September and we got our wish, but it's meant that I have to say to all our listeners, I, I cannot possibly survive this recording session without having the window open, which means you might hear some trains, you might hear <laughs> the cockerel of Peckham Rye, which is so addled by the heat that he's been cockadoodly doing his heart out at like four and then again at 6pm and I don't know what's happening to him. <laughs> There's a cockerel on your street in Peckham? There's a cockerel in Peckham. I don't know exactly where he lives, but I hear him every morning. Luckily, wow. I wake up early, so we uh, we wake up together. <laughs> a taste of the rural life. Very exciting for you. <laughs> yeah, Peckham Rye, that notoriously rural spot. <laughs> How about you? How are you? I'm also hot. I have had to shut my window because it was so loud oh, and no. with all the trains passing, but I'm, I think I'm visibly sweating at this point, so yeah, it's good same. we're not on video. I mean, I love the heat. I'm not going to complain. It's a little bit weird to have it at the beginning of September when it's supposed to be this back to school time. And yet, like, I have to wear like booty shorts every day just to keep cool. So, <laughs> I mean, I booty don't shorts. have to wear booty shorts. <laughs> I'm but... sorry. I, I just have to wear my sexiest outfit every day in this weather. I just, I cannot survive without putting on my Listen, kinky little shorts. Any chances in the UK to grab your opportunity Listen, to wear booty shorts. If you're wearing booty shorts for this episode, I'll put on my negligee and then we'll be matching. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Today on the show, we are delighted to welcome the author Naomi Klein to talk about her latest book, Doppelganger. This is a compelling and intellectually rigorous journey that begins with a mix-up. Other people kept confusing Naomi Klein with another Naomi, Naomi Wolf, the author of the best-selling feminist manifesto, The Beauty Myth. Then the other Naomi got lost in a mirror world of right-wing conspiracies, especially in relation to the COVID vaccine. Eventually, she became a regular guest on Steve Bannon's radio show. Klein uses the trajectory of the other Naomi to examine the reflection of this mirror world on the right, in which vaccines are tools to control us, climate change is a hoax, and child trafficking by major politicians is rampant. In doing so, she invites us to view our own distorted reflections, and ask how we might use this information to make real change. So in honor of Doppelganger, the book, today for our theme, we are tackling the mirror worlds of literature. We'll be thinking about the attraction of the dark double in stories, our favorite literary doppelgangers, and what mirror worlds can tell us about ourselves. Before we get started, though, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Naomi Octavia? I sure can. Naomi Klein is the award-winning author of international bestsellers, including This Changes Everything, The Shock Doctrine, No Logo, No Is Not Enough, and On Fire, which have been published in more than 30 languages. She's an associate professor in the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia, the founding co-director of UBC's Centre of Climate Justice, and an honorary professor of media and climate at Rutgers University. Her writing has appeared in leading publications around the world, and she's just launched a regular column for The Guardian. Also, quick reminder that we are on Patreon. If you'd like to support the work that we do and get extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as a chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. Our latest Patreon was a celebration of road trips in our own lives and in fiction. Beep, beep. That's me on a road trip. Toot, toot. 
You can find a list of all the books we recommended today on bookshop.org. Now stay tuned for our interview with Naomi Klein, our discussion of mirror worlds and literature, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So don't get too distracted by your reflection. Stay with us for the next hour on Literary Friction. I'm Especially if you. you're wearing booty shorts. <laughs> okay, you pulled it back. Naomi Klein, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction today. I'm delighted to be with you. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Doppelganger. Would you mind setting it up for us? Yeah, absolutely. This is from not too far along in the book, a section called Book of Naomi, which is a play on Book of Ruth. And it's about how much I really didn't want to be named Naomi (laughs) and argued with my mother that I should be allowed to change it to another N.A. name that that was a little less Jewish, I suppose. So this section begins with me negotiating with my mother about why I should have been named Natasha, Natalie, or Nadia. In Hebrew, Naomi means pleasant or pleasing and is sometimes translated as sweet. When I asked her recently, my mom remembered its meaning as comforting though I can find no evidence for this. Perhaps that's her memory because comfort was what she was looking for when she carried a daughter while grieving a father on that frozen French-speaking island. My name appears in the Old Testament Book of Ruth, which tells of an Israelite mother, Naomi, whose husband and two sons die, leaving her with only her son's widows as kin. Ruth, the more devoted daughter-in-law, stays with her, and they travel together to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. When the townspeople greet their old friend by her given name, she tells them that it does not fit. She has lost too much and is no longer pleasant, pleasing, or sweet. They should instead call her Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. In the third grade, I had a best friend named Mara who lived three blocks over and, unlike me, had the patience of a saint and was able to make her Halloween candy stash last for the entire year. Cheeks bulging with stale jawbreakers, we would recite this line to each other, feeling that it sanctified our bond as two Jewish girls in a wasp neighborhood. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. As my other Naomi problems dragged on and on, that line would occasionally find its way into my head again. Don't call me pleasant, I would think to myself, scrawling through the furious denunciations and sarcastic memes. Call me bitter. Except, as this period of double vision continued, mirroring the intellectual and ideological mayhem of the COVID era, I found that my bitterness was steadily fading, giving way to more complex and unexpected emotions. Being chronically confused with another person may be humiliating, but that's not all it is. It's also an oddly intimate experience. The boundaries between you and alter you begin to wear down, becoming thin, even diaphanous. Their problems are your problems, their shame, your shame. A doppelganger is your trail, 
your shadow, a bit like in the biblical story from which we derive our name, in which Ruth proclaims to Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Perhaps this is why I became increasingly not bitter or angry about the confusion, but intensely interested. Interested, as the world grew ever weirder, in what this all meant, and in why she was doing what she was doing, and in what she was going to do next. That's a great introduction to the book. And I think interested is a very good word for what this book is. It's very interested in the world today. It's very interested in your name and who you are and what it means to have doppelganger. And we'll get into all of those things. But I actually want to start with the first line of the book, which is, in my defense, it was never my intent to write this book, which I loved. Um, and I wanted I to ask- have time. No one asked me to, and several people <laughs> cautioned against it. <laughs> but I wanted to ask, when did it become clear that it was the book that you were in fact writing and had to write? Oh, yeah. It didn't start as a book. I thought, okay, maybe it'll just be an interesting essay. And it came from a desire to write in a different way than I had been writing over the past really 20 years since my first book, No Logo, came out almost 25 years ago. That book was more playful. It had more kind of quirky voice in it. It was a little more confessional, a little more jokey because I was an unknown writer when I wrote it and I felt pretty free to, to play. And because I got so fortunate with my first book and it, it, it made me well-known and kind of watched <laughs> as a as a kind of public face of the left. I would say that my the books that followed the Shock Doctrine, this changes everything, were less playful. And you know, I, I'm not I'm not going to throw those books under under the bus, but they were pretty linear. They didn't have much of my own voice in them. And I was just looking to get back to why I wanted to become a writer again. I was home. I. I was a little politically depressed, so I didn't have a kind of rallying book I wanted to write or felt convinced enough to write. So I just started playing with form. I started working actually with a writing teacher and we did a bunch of exercises. And while that was happening, I was dealing with this intensifying identity confusion online. And I would would tell my writing teacher about it. Her name's Harriet Clark. Like, oh, guess what happened just now? I just got harangued about how I should read my own books because there's another Naomi who's a better Naomi than me. Or someone just accused me of saying people who haven't been vaccinated are like Jews in Germany who were forced to wear the yellow star. And then it just finally occurred to me, I could write about this. <laughs> but it was a secret book. That, that's the other thing that's really different about this book is I didn't tell an agent or an editor that it existed until I had written 10 chapters, which is very much not my way of doing things. Right. Yeah. Well, for listeners who don't know, because I'm sure there will be a few, can you tell us a bit about Naomi Wolf, the other Naomi, and and her recent spiral into this right-wing conspiracy, Fandango, this complete madness? Fandango, I like it. I'm always <laughs> looking for ways to not use like terms that stigmatize mental health. <laughs> well, yes, um, that's true. And I, there yeah. I was saying madness. It's they're so hard to avoid because... No, but you just gave me a good one. I'm making yeah. a note. Fandango. Fandango. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
yeah, so I mean, I will we'll talk a bit about her, but I first want to want to clarify that the, the book really is not about her. It is a book in which she is a case study of of a phenomenon that goes well beyond her. We've all we have all told each other about people we know, uh, whether personally or as public figures who have really almost become doppelgangers of themselves, who sort of are acting very differently, making very strange alliances. And, you know, maybe it's that yoga teacher who you really loved and suddenly they're posting all kinds of memes about how vaccines shed on on women and and so on. So she's a case study and she's also a, a literary technique in the sense that I'm using my own experience of of having a doppelganger to talk about different ways that we double ourselves and other people's create doubles of us and the way whole societies can have a kind of lurking evil twin. So Naomi Wolf, for the Gen Xers who are listening, (laughs) will remember that she sort of shot to fame after being a Rhodes Scholar in the UK with her first book, which which she published when she was, I think, 28, called The Beauty Myth which was about unattainable female ideals of beauty and making an argument that the bar was being raised in the 80s about what women were supposed to look like. And this was, you know, the fitness craze. And she was arguing that women were now supposed to look like models, regular women. So that was the beauty myth. And then she got a series of contracts with the Democratic Party or and, and consultants who, who work with the Democratic Party, eventually advising Al Gore in his 2000 presidential run on how to attract female voters. She wrote lots of other books about feminism. And then more recently, she also was just one of these people who was online way too much and posted things without checking them. And it wasn't till COVID happened that she really became one of the most influential figures in spreading medical misinformation about vaccines and vaccine verification apps and also COVID itself. Yeah. And as you say, she's she's really a case study here. And what you're looking at is this mirror world of the conspiratorial right, where it's a reflection of things that are happening in our world, but sort of a distorted reflection. And well, first, first, I want to ask you, you're talking about COVID as a turning point for Naomi Wolf. And that also seems to be a bit of a turning point for our culture at large in terms of conspiracy going mainstream. And you talk a little bit about what that might be. You, you call it a moment of squared virality. But I wonder if you could just expand on that. Why does COVID seem to be this point when conspiracies just became a part of our everyday fabric of reality. Yeah, that phrase comes from Stephen Thrasher and his book, The Viral Underclass, which is really worth reading. And he makes the case that COVID-19 was the first virus to become a pandemic in the age of viral information. And, and that created virality squared. So you know, I think I think we probably remember this moment, right? Those of us who are privileged enough to be part of the lockdown class are stuck in our homes, going online way too much to find some simulation of the friendships and community that we miss, and also to try to understand what the hell this novel virus is and what we can do to protect ourselves. This is before there were there were any treatments, before there were vaccines. 
and it's global. I mean, I think it w- what is what is really extraordinary about this moment that is unprecedented as far as I can tell is because we are in such a networked world. Yes, there have been pandemics before, but there has not been anything this globally synchronous at a time when we were globally connected and able to have synchronous conversations. And what that meant is that if you put something into the ether that was particularly outrageous or particularly salacious or seemed to make sense of this thing that that even our doctors did not yet understand, then you would get a kind of digital magic carpet ride to end all digital magic carpet rides because we were all globally online so much. So conspiracies during times of confusion and chaos are not new. But I think what we're seeing is that impulse meeting the attention economy and the fact that COVID is what Quince Lobidian and, and William Callison talk, uh, describe as a monetizable disaster in the sense that it isn't just that you would get a digital carpet ride if you made these wild claims. It's that you could turn that into money. You could turn that into followers, subscriptions. There's no end of ways that you can cash in. And that is unique to our age. It is a lot easier to turn conspiracy theory into cash. Right. So we are in the age of the grifter, as we all know. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. And also, I think, an age of extremely rapid change, which means that there is a lot of stuff that people are afraid of, and they bury those fears and carry on as normal, and then something catastrophic happens. And as you talk about in the book, you know, conspiracies in this mirror world they're very much born from real threats in the world that we understand we live in, you know, like our anxiety about surveillance by tech companies or, you know, longstanding kind of mistrust of the biochemical engineering complex and the medical system and things like that. And it seems like you you draw very well the picture of how it's not so far a leap necessarily. It's just that then the where the person lands, as you say, ends up on a magic carpet ride. But I felt one of the things I responded to in the book was that you are not combative about people in the mirror world. It feels like you're really trying to understand their perspective as well. And why was that important to you? Well, I think it just would have been too easy. You know, it, it is a doppelganger book and and doppelganger books, you know, are, are a genre. And what you find out very quickly from reading books about protagonists who are who are tormented by their doppelgangers is it always it, it's always a mirror it's always an extension of the self your doppelganger is always showing you something about yourself and so you know even if i might have liked to write some naomi v naomi be the last naomi standing book you know, <laughs> like that would have been a bad doppelganger book and and i am interested i'm genuinely interested in why these theories are getting the traction that they are getting and I write in the book that cons- that conspiracy culture often gets the facts wrong, but the feelings right. And that is only going to work if nobody else with a loud voice, with a big platform, is speaking to those same feelings. The most unsettling moments for me in this journey are when I would follow my doppelganger to this place I call the mirror world and listen to... Steve Bannon, for instance, a place where she's now very much a regular guest on his daily show. And Bannon is a very skilled strategist. And the the way he helped get Trump elected in 2016 was identifying people 
and issues that the Democrats used to take seriously and had since sort of discarded, in particular, blue-collar workers in deindustrialized areas who had voted for Democrats since Bill Clinton, who promised to do something about jobs lost to free trade deals and never did. And I think something very similar is happening with a lot of these places where they're getting the facts wrong, but the feelings right. For instance, Wolf really shot to right-wing fame during COVID, started getting invited onto Fox and GB News and the like, when she claimed that vaccine verification apps were actually a plot to surveil all of us. So this was not true. Those QR codes on our phones were not able to eavesdrop on us. They were not able to track us unless they had been scanned. A lot of what she was saying was not true. I verified all of this with Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is in no way sanguine about digital surveillance. But the liberal response, and in some cases the left-wing response to all of the people on the right who were saying this about vaccine apps was... There was this meme that was circulating, or, which was, wait till they hear about cell phones. Do you remember that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I remember seeing like, seeing it and, and just chuckling to myself. And I may have even retweeted it like, ha, 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 wait till they hear about cell phones. And then I thought, wait a minute. Are we saying that we're okay with the fact that our cell phones are able to do all of this? Right. And the fact is that there is huge discomfort about what is happening with tech and, and, and what has happened to our privacy and what is happening with our data, especially in the age of the AI. And if there isn't a serious policy response to that, that actually says that we have a right to privacy, that we have a right to our own data and not to have digital doppelgangers of us being created by tech companies, then of course Steve Bannon is going to pick that up and, and mix it up with all kinds of nefarious other issues. Yeah, now that, I mean, mentioning Bannon and Wolf together, you know, one of the really helpful terms you define in the book is diagonalism, um, which I'd not heard before. And it, it was it, like it unlocked something for me. So I wonder if you could talk about what that is and how it's redrawing these political lines that, you know, we would never have imagined would be where they are. Yeah, for sure. So it's an attempt to, to, to claim that you've moved beyond left and right and you're diagonal, right? So it's describing the forging of coalitions that create these unexpected alliances. They mix and match elements of tradition, like it's rejection of traditional democratic institutions, real suspicion of any kind of expertise, combined with spiritual holism and a kind of a fetish for the natural in food and healthcare with libertarianism. And this is the key point, though it does contain elements of the new age green left, it reliably arcs to the hard right. Yeah. And you get into that more in um, your chapter, which both fascinated and absolutely terrified me called The Far Right Meets the Far Out, which is basically about the alliance between fascism and new age thinking. Which is not new, right? My own question on this, which is like, why are there so many yoga teachers involved in this? <laughs> I like, you know, I, 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 at certain points in my life, I have done a lot of yoga. So, you know, there were people who I knew who had changed, who had become doppelgangers of themselves. I listened a lot to this podcast, Conspirituality, which is hosted by somebody who I, what, it has three hosts, and one of the hosts is someone who I once met on a yoga retreat. 
Um, and they're trying to make sense of, you know, what happened to our world? Why are so many of our former colleagues and friends making these alliances with, why are they talking about QAnon? Why are they praising Donald Trump? What is happening? <laughs> <laughs> and I think what, what you see is that the underlying tenets of certain kinds of very corporate wellness culture, let's just say like very Instagram friendly wellness culture, already sort of rhymed with the paranoid individualism of far-right conspiracy theories, because you get this message in wellness culture that we as individuals have to take charge of our own bodies as our primary sites of influence and control. And in the book, I talk about how we, in a way, when, when we become really fitness obsessed, we make a, we make a body double, where, which is like the idealized body that we want to achieve with enough hours of practice with enough repetitions, with enough discipline. And that kind of thinking is, is, it's too easy to slide into the idea that if the people who don't do this very disciplined kind of, of, of elimination dieting and exercise, maybe they deserve what they get, right? And that's all too compatible with far-right notions of natural hierarchies, genetic superiority, and and disposable people. And, you know, I tell the story in, in the book of this really harrowing moment when my, my husband ran for office in Canada and I helped out a little on the campaign. We did some door knocking and where we live is a pretty sort of hippy dippy part of British Columbia. And we went to this, to this one neighborhood where uh, Avi went to a house, that's my husband's name, where he, where he said the door was open and he could smell the sandalwood from the sidewalk wafting out and there were all these like little Ganesh statues and out comes a woman super fit and toned in her, in her yoga gear. Looks like someone I could have taken an Ashtanga class from. And the only question she has for him is what is your position on vaccine passports? And when he says that the party that he was running with did believe that they were necessary, she said, well, I have a strong immune system and I don't need to get vaccinated. And he gently raised the, the the reality that not everyone has as strong an immune system as her. And she said to him, I think they should die. Oh my God. And I think that was the moment when we realized this is big. Like this is, this is a lot. There is a migration of the minds at work and anything we're telling ourselves that we don't have to pay attention to this because it's too marginal. It's too weird. We should really stop saying that. Yeah. And you make the point that actually they're paying attention when you're when you're listening to Steve Bannon. It's clear he has his eye on what the left is saying. And and also another term that I found really useful that you borrow from Philip Roth's novel, Operation Shylock, is pipicism. Is that how you would pronounce it? Pipicism? Pipicism, yes. <laughs> yeah. Nothing nothing delights me more than getting a little Yiddish into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about that concept and why why you found it so illuminating in Roth's novel and why you found it so illuminating in your kind of journey through the mirror world of of doppelgangers? So in the book, I, you know, I, I look at a lot of the the most influential doppelganger novels for clues about how one should respond to confronting their their double, and I read Dostoevsky and Dickens and. Edgar Allan Poe and Oscar Wilde and Ursula Le Guin. But in the end, it was Roth, who I have a very complicated relationship with because as a undergrad, my last encounter with Roth was at age 20 when I took my copy of 
his book Counter Life and threw it across my dorm room and vowed never again to read another book by Philip Roth because <laughs> I was so exhausted by it, just the unidimensionality of his female characters. And I knew just about everything I needed to know about the mommy issues of middle-aged Jewish men in the tri-state area, especially because I have many in my own family. So, So I just decided to move on and I did. And then that's why it was very annoying that when I was reading, I would was look up like best doppelganger novels and, and it just kept coming up, Operation Shylock. And I was like, oh God, do I have to go back to Roth? And I did. And it is brilliant and it is sexist. But I powered through and and got a lot out of the book. And one of the things that I got out of the book is this is this is this phrase pipicism that Roth uses. So it, so Operation Shylock is his most doppelganger novel. And I say that because all of his novels are doppelganger novels in the sense that he has always played with the idea that his protagonists are thinly veiled versions of himself. But with Shylock, he went all the way there and named the main character Philip Roth. But he also has a doppelganger who is fake Roth. And fake Roth or other Roths is running around Jerusalem making all kinds of trouble. And Philip Roth, because it's a doppelganger novel, obviously has to confront him, impersonate him, and hijinks ensue, as well as sex with Jinx, his hot girlfriend. (laughs) It's a Philip Roth novel, so what's going to happen? So at one point, he decides that he is going to rename his doppelganger, who has been calling himself Philip Roth. And instead of calling him other, other Roth or fake Roth, he decides to rename him Moisha Pippik, which in, in, is a Yiddish a diminutive used to sort of belittle people or tease people. And it, it translates as Moses's belly button. Pippik means belly button. And so the original idea was to take back some control, like to, to say, I'm not going to let you ha- share my name. I'm going to just na- call you this, this, this mocking nickname. But the problem with that is that if, if, if your doppelganger is absurd, then you are absurd because because other people think it's you, right? It's like my dog Smoke. Every night when the sun goes down and, and it gets dark and she sees her own reflection in our front door, she starts barking ferociously because she, she thinks there's another incredibly cute white cockapoo trying to get into our house. And I explained to her that that is her dog pulganger and <laughs> it's actually her that she's barking at herself. And this is the problem with having a doppelganger. You, you know, bark all you want, but you always end up looking at yourself. So if, if, if your, if your double is absurd, then you are absurd. And, and, and Ross describes pipicism as the anti-tragic force that inconsequentializes everything farcicalizes everything, trivializes everything, superficializes everything. And so pipicking is what Steve Bannon is doing when he appropriates issues from the left. He renders them absurd by applying them to the neo-fascist right. You know, he says, we are being othered. (laughs) Or when you see, you know, anti-vax demonstrators wearing yellow stars, uh, as if to say that they are you know, experiencing the same kind of discrimination and oppression as Jews in Nazi Germany. I mean, it's not just that they're appropriating it, it's that they're rendering it absurd and harder. And so, you know, one of the themes of the book is like, how do we take things back from the forces of Pipicism? Yeah. And I love the conclusion that you come to that the doppelganger can represent a path not taken. And therefore we need systems that light up our better selves. And, and also 
you talk about a, a real need for a union on the left. So could you talk about these conclusions that you came to in the end? Like what, how do we confront this mirror world? Well, we definitely don't confront it alone. I don't think we win this one uncle at a time, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, which is not to say that one shouldn't try with the uncle or the friend or the yoga teacher or whoever it is, because I do think that that social science shows that if somebody is going to change their mind, it's probably going to be somebody who they know and love who will get through to them. And when we cut people off, then it means that they're not just getting ideas and a whole cosmology from these nefarious figures. They're also getting their entire community and, and, and social network from them. And that makes it a lot harder to change your mind because then it's really not about the opinion or the belief. It's about your need for connection. So if it is possible to keep door, lines of communication and doors open, I would I would, I would encourage folks to do that and try to find some common ground. You know, if someone's really angry at big pharma, well, maybe you are too. Maybe you can pivot it towards something a little more rooted, like uh, in reality. These are bridges I think that, that, that we can put in place, but it's a political project, I guess is what I'm saying, as well as a personal project. I think it has to be a political project that is about improving people's lives tangibly people are in pain, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and, you know, I've been part of social movements where there seemed to be a tangible political offer and you can see that it shakes people out of their despair. You know, I I was at the, you know, what I was doing right before COVID was campaigning with, with Senator Bernie Sanders. I went to five States with him and, you know, saw a lot of really, really, really beaten down people, you know, beaten down by medical debt, by student debt, by just grinding exploitative work, by loneliness, and just, you know, seeing this kind of possibility, like maybe there is a way that there can be a collective response, like a fight for a living wage or a fight for canceling student debt. And I think when those possibilities close down and people don't see hope, they're much more prone to fall for a fraudulent or counterfeit version of a response from the likes of Steve Bannon. Yeah, that makes so much sense. You also quote the civil rights scholar, John A. Powell, who wrote, we can be hard and critical on structures, but soft on people, which felt like such an important message, actually, because I think there is so much, you know, you you cover this in the book as well, that there can be a tendency on the left, even though leftist thinking is supposed to be about community and coming together, that that's not necessarily how the left acts when faced with people who don't think like them. But I wonder, like, how, how do you think we can enact that more as a society, being hard on structures but soft on people? Well, it's interesting because you know, I also have a section of the book about anti-Semitism as a, as, as a very old and recurring, perhaps the oldest and most recurring conspiracy theory about there being a cabal of Jews in a back room somewhere who are pulling the strings. And if we could just get rid of them, then we'd have, you know, healthy, wonderful capitalism. And I think that many conspiracy theories play this role of, you know, what's been called a socialism of fools, where instead of understanding that this is a system doing what it was designed to do, and 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 that some conspiracies are real within that framework, we don't we don't really teach kids what how capitalism works in school. I mean, we generally teach them it's about freedom and rainbows and Big Macs and the best system possible. So. 
I think because there is so little of that kind of education about the system that we are inside of, it becomes a lot easier to fall for one of these cabal theories. You know, that's what QAnon is. But it is a vision for justice. And, you know, so what I write in the book is we need our own vision for justice. It's not enough just to laugh at them and talk about how silly it is. We have to have our own vision of what accountability would look like and what horizon we're moving towards. And I think a thread running through the book is the self taking up too much space is, you know, that, that, that we, we believe that we can protect ourselves from these, or we're told that we can protect ourselves from these roiling, increasingly roiling seas by fortressing our own bodies or our own families or our own brands or our own narrow identity groups. And it's really not going to work. It may work for a little while, but ultimately if we want to get somewhere safe, we're going to have to soften the icy edges around our individual selves and our individual identity groups. And that's why, in the end, I thank my doppelganger for forcing me to take myself less seriously and do a little of what Iris Murdoch called unselfing. Naomi Klein, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about your book, Doppelganger. There's a lot more in there, so I'd really encourage our listeners to check it out. It was such a pleasure to speak with both of you. Thank you. We are back here to talk about our wider theme today, which is mirror worlds in literature. I really love Naomi's conception of the mirror worlds of right-wing conspiracies in her book, Doppelganger. And so I, I think it makes sense to kind of expand that a little and think about how mirror worlds appear in fiction. And of course, the stories we tell are populated by dark doubles and distorted reflections from, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to, I was thinking about the upside down in Stranger Things. I mean, there there are so many stories that have a reflected world. Why do you think that's the case? Why are we so attracted to the mirror world in storytelling? I think it's an area where Freud and Jung and a bunch of other guys were actually really onto something here. I think it's, its roots lie in the unconscious. I really believe that, you know, most of us understand that there are ways in which we remain a mystery to ourselves, no matter how well we think we know ourselves, and that we have these urges and impulses that, you know, maybe go against our self-conception and maybe they lead us to do things that we don't understand or that don't feel actually very in line with our principles or the kind of person that we think we are. And I was thinking a lot about that reading Naomi's book where she writes so much about, you know, the projected selves and the personal brands that we're encouraged to kind of distill ourselves into in the in the world of, of social media and the attention economy. And how I think that creates even more of that kind of dissonance of the, the perfect version of the self that's being projected outwards. And then the truth of the messy impenetrable kind of unfathomable reality of of part of the self which is the unconscious or as Jung would have it that the shadow self and I think basically for a lot of people for maybe for all of us to some extent you know we roll headlong into denial because it's actually far too uncomfortable to confront the shadow part of the self or the urges from the unconscious that do things that we don't want 
to associate ourselves with, right? And I think some people end up in therapy and they try to welcome that shadow self in and and maybe try and confront it a little bit and accept it and try and get to know it. And other people just go headlong into a projected external self that denies the existence of the shadow self. And those people end up in a lot of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? What do you think? Yeah, well, I I think you're absolutely right. And as you say, the pull of the mirror world is that it's a different distorted place, but it's also a reflection of ourselves. And I really like the point that Naomi makes in Doppelganger that, you know, part of the point of the shadow self is that it's not so easy to divide good from bad, you know, that, that the shadow self is an alternative version of ourselves. And if we, if we don't bring that in, as you say, we're living a lie. So the mirror world is telling us as much about who we are as who we are not. And I think that's, that's right for fiction, right? Which is, which is so interested in who humans are, who we are as a culture, how we think ourselves to be versus how we, we are in other ways. And I was trying to, you know, make this concrete by thinking of examples of mirror worlds in literature. I mentioned the upside down, but also so many of the famous ones that I was thinking about are in children's literature, the looking glass in Alice in Wonderland, for instance, or Philip Pullman's Northern Lights trilogy, which is all about other worlds. And I think that makes a lot of sense because our relationship to reality is so much more porous in childhood and also we aren't as fixed in ourselves. So I think children are more receptive in a way to the idea that other worlds could exist and do exist. There's not as much of a kind of separation in the same way. I also loved Naomi's descriptions of China Melville's The City and the City, which, which sounds like an amazing book and maybe is thinking through some of these themes in, in adult literature. So I would love to read that. You know, the thing about children as well is that children already live in a doubled world because they're hyper aware that there's the children's world and then there's the world of adults, which they don't have access to, but they are at the mercy of and they see around them all the time. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But how about the doppelganger specifically, which is another part of this? In, In the book, there are a number of literary doppelgangers in the discussion, most memorably as she said, Philip Roth's double in Operation Shylock. What do you think is so appealing about this kind of personal double in storytelling? Yeah, I mean, I think it's partly because of this thing where we know it's impossible to ever really see ourselves. And if you even think about that for a second, like maybe not just at four in the morning when you've had a spliff, but like genuinely think about it with your full mind, you know, you very quickly realize that there's so much about you that you are unaware of, but others can see extremely clearly, right? And like the sense of control and then relinquishing control of yourself and your image and how you are perceived by other people is something that is kind of endlessly fascinating. And I think that the doppelganger fascination and fear is is rooted in that idea of an encounter that you might have with a version of yourself that is you, but unrecognizable to you. Because what if it is really the real you? What is if, what if that is really how everyone else sees you all this time and it's not how you see yourself? And I think that there's this kind of double direction, this like fantasy, you know, the Freudian fantasy type, the PH with a PH rather than an F, like the phantasmagorical experience where it might be soothing to meet yourself and get this momentary chance to see yourself as others see you, or it might be profoundly destabilizing. In reality, it's going to be both. 
But I was thinking, there's a short story by one of my old faves, Borges, called The Other Borges. It's about a meeting between the older and younger Borges. And they talk about Dostoevsky's The Double and it's classic Borges. It's kind of intellectual and also emotional. But essentially, both of these versions of Borges have different ideas about which one of them is real. And it gets into this really interesting idea that Naomi also writes about, which is that as we age, we become our own doppelgangers. And I was thinking about how I think there is an age that feels like the true version of who you are, and then your body continues to age, but maybe your psyche doesn't. Like, I always think about my dad, actually, who who used to say he felt 60 on the inside, well into his 80s, you know, his dementia notwithstanding. But I could really relate to that experience. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that as a writer, you know, and as a writer of memoir, I have a very tangible experience of myself as a doppelganger to myself because of the narrator's voice I wrote in. And it is exciting and strange to double yourself like that. It's very, it comes with a lot of temptations, right? Like you really could make a perfect version of yourself or a version of yourself that was shinier and better and stronger or whatever than you really are. And I think for writers, it's it can be hard to resist that temptation actually, right? To polish yourself on the page. But the other strange thing is when you write a book about your own life, you continue to age, but the version of you in the book is frozen that stage forever. I agree. And I was trying to think about, okay, what is artistically interesting about the doppelganger and your fave Freud has, has even more fave. to offer. Let's call him a problematic <laughs> fave. <laughs> okay. Your problematic fave Freud has more to offer here about, you know, ideas about the uncanny because I think that's that's what being confronted with the doppelganger is. It's it's unsettling because it's both familiar and strange. It's uncomfortable. And, you know, so much good art is in a space of discomfort, basically. I, I was thinking about David Lynch and Twin Peaks as a show that really understands that. He cast the same actress as the murdered Laura Palmer and her cousin. And it it creates this sensation of uncanniness and strangeness through watching, which is transformative and transfixing as well. And this is completely different from David Lynch, but I, I was also thinking about the Sweet Valley High series <gasps> of books. <laughs> <laughs> They're twins. Yeah. Identical blonde, blue-eyed twins from Connecticut. Named like Jessica the Aaron's dream. Yeah. yeah. And I read these as a preteen and they, they were very popular books. And I think they're so popular because people love the idea of imagining what it must be like to have somebody else in the world who was different from them, but looked exactly like them. And that's kind of the premise of every single story in that series of books. Like they're always, you know, getting into hijinks and pretending to be each other and solving mysteries because they're identical twins and using the fact of their resemblance kind of to, to, get into scrapes and adventures. And so I think, you know, it's uh, it's like the opposite of David Lynch, but it's sort of, I don't know, it's tapping into our the same like discomfort, but also attraction mm. that I think we have to this idea. I can see that. <laughs> but what about novels? Let's make it a little meta, Octavia. Do you think that we could define novels as a kind of mirror world? And... Is literature a distorted reflection of reality? She loves a meta question. <laughs> yes, I think, I mean, I think, yes, it can be. I also think it can offer us a version of reality 
with access to deeper truths than we might be able to see in our day-to-day life because our own experience is in the way, right? So precisely because we struggle so much to actually see ourselves, but we are so much more able to see and actually, you know, probably judge others. And that's something that the novel gives you the opportunity to do, right? It gives you the opportunity to have this omniscient view over a group of characters and their motives. And it gives you openings for you to sort of understand maybe before the character does what's happening and that feeling of sort of mastery. I was also thinking actually of Zadie Smith's latest novel, The Fraud. And I I did an event with her this week. And this was actually one of the things we talked about. It's a a novel that has a strong strand of kind of meta-analysis of the role of literature and the role of the novel in creating truth and also creating falsehoods. And one of her characters says several times in the book, novelists lie to tell the truth, which I take to mean, you know, they create a fictional world, a lie, in order to say true things about the real world. And it reminded me of this Italo Calvino quote where he says something slightly different, but it's related, where he his view is, novelists tell that piece of truth hidden at the bottom of every lie. Either way, both of these authors are getting at the idea that a full, really full understanding of reality is actually kind of impossible because of the fact that we're locked within subjectivity, which means that there will always be things beyond our understanding and always things that lurk in this mirror world. And the the novel offers you the opportunity of a very specific kind of reflection, but it's never going to be total. Yeah, totally. So do you have a recommendation on our theme of mirror worlds, Octavia? I do. It's August Blue by Deborah Levy, which I know we've recommended before, but it felt really vital to this conversation because it's brilliant, but also because crucially, actually, it explores the doppelganger in a different context. Most of the traditional stories we've name-checked or mentioned, and most of the stories that Naomi writes about in the book are about men. And Deborah wanted to write about a woman with a double and put this doppelganger in a different context, the context of female experience. And in this book, the double is ambiguous, but it's not nefarious. She's a catalyst for change in the main character's life. And when thinking about this mysterious woman who is her double, this main character thinks this wonderful line, perhaps she was a little more than I was, which I think is such a great spin on the concept of the doppelganger. Yes, I need to read it. It sounds so good. It's so good. My recommendation is The Likeness by Tana French, which is one of French's Dublin Murder Squad novels. And it rests on the rather ridiculous premise that an Irish detective looks exactly like a young woman who was just murdered. And so she must embed herself in a group house with the victim's friends who don't yet know that she's dead to try to find out what happened. So it's a totally unbelievable premise, but somehow it works. And I think the mystery is a great canvas to explore all of the questions that we've been talking about that doppelgangers raise, particularly about how much of our life is actually our own. So it's just a really thrilling mystery, but I think there are a lot of questions sort of hovering around this really plotty novel about who the self really is. And I, I just think it's a wonderful book. Mm, sounds great.
Okay, this is Carrie back here with Octavia and Naomi to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start with yours? I would. And I'm so delighted to be able to recommend this book finally. It's called Alone and it's by my wonderful friend, Daniel Schreiber. And he wrote it um, initially in German, which is his mother tongue. And it's finally been translated into English, which means I can read it. So the translation's by Ben Ferguson. And it is honestly, it's such a beautiful book. It's very beautifully written, very elegantly constructed book about living a life alone and the tension inherent in that between the desire for the kind of freedom of solitude and then the need for companionship and the complicated problem of loneliness. And he is a very scholarly thinker, but a very humane writer. So he interweaves reflections from his own life with ideas that he draws down from philosophy, from psychology, from sociology, from literature, in a way quite similar to the way you write Doppelganger, Naomi. There's a broad scope and he brings it all back through this very specific funnel. And what is the most powerful thing about it really is is he has this very rigorous way of thinking about the structures that shape our experience of the world and our expectations that we inherit, that we don't choose. So he thinks carefully about how we might actually disentangle ourselves from some of these inherited ideas and figure out how to think independently and then forge a life of our own and make choices on our own terms. So he makes the point that contrary to this like very long established idea, which is obviously grounded in heteropatriarchal ideas of social organization, is that anything that falls outside of the couple or outside of the family unit is an abnormal way of living, when actually more people than ever before now live alone. So he kind of looks into that. He looks into the fact that romantic love is this relentlessly grand narrative that we're handed in all of our popular culture and our high culture consistently, but actually that it's only one of the potential grand narratives. And what about, say, the grand narrative of friendship, you know, which are often actually the longest and most enduring relationships in our lives beyond our romantic relationships. And as we know, many marriages end in divorce. So, you know, it's interesting to think about these things. And then he sort of ends in this place where he's, he, he wants you to see that actually learning to accept loneliness is an integral part of life, regardless of how you organize your life. Instead of fearing it so much that we actually end up you know, clinging to anything that will keep it at bay, whether those are relationships that don't function anymore or anything we might use to distract ourselves from the feeling of loneliness. So uh, it's a gift of a book and I recommend it very highly. Mm -hmm. Sounds wonderful. Naomi, could we have your recommendation, please? I am going to recommend a book that so many people have already read and loved. And, you know, I usually, when I have this opportunity, recommend a book that very few people know about or is just coming out, but I just decided to indulge myself and recommend a book that I just is the book that has gripped me most in the past uh, few months, which is Barbara King Solver's Demon Copperhead. Wait, which <laughs> what? That was going to be my recommendation. Oh, no. So we, no, no, we can do it together. It <laughs> okay, can be a double <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's it doesn't need us to recommend no. it. It's already won all the huge <laughs> prizes, but it is just staggering, isn't it? It's the best. Tell me why yeah. you loved it, and then I'll say a little bit. Okay, I mean, I. First of all, I'm a huge Barbara King Solvers fan. I love all of her books. But this book, I think, is her masterwork. And it is set in Southern Appalachia. It is the story of a boy whose nickname is Demon Copperhead. It's just the most extraordinary act of empathy. But it, it is it is a story about, about discarded kids and all the ways that kids get discarded and all the ways that it shapes and warps their lives. And it tells the story 
of demon or as the child of a single mom who he loved, but was more of a caregiver for and her abusive boyfriend or opioid poisoning, foster care slash child labor. It's a love story. I think it does a very good job of describing the appeals of getting high when there's many reasons to try to go somewhere else to, to, to have a true trip to get out. But I really feel like it comes from this place in King Solver where she loves where she, she, she lives in, in Appalachia. She grew up in Appalachia. And it's really the one place that you're allowed to make fun of in American culture. Like hillbillies. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's so much sort of awareness around language and, you know, not dismissing or mocking people who are part of oppressed groups, but this is the one kind of where it's okay to mock. And she, she wants justice for her people. And there's so much dignity and empathy and also anger in the way that she writes about the way uh, her people have been treated and dismissed and treated as a sacrifice zone by the coal industry, by the drug companies who dump their opioids, but also by kind of smug liberals who allow themselves this one area where they get to make fun of poor people. I completely agree. That's such a great description of it. And the, and the only other things I will say is, first of all, if you if you've heard about this book but haven't picked it up because you don't like Dickens or haven't read David Copperfield, I yes, I hadn't. And I don't even particularly like Dickens that much, but I, I don't think that matters. I, I think it's still worth reading and you don't need to know anything about Dickens. You don't need to know anything about David Copperfield to get things out of it. I also just feel that she somehow manages to write a story that's a history lesson about the ways in which the people of Appalachia have been exploited by the mining industry and almost everyone else in the United States, a very damning portrait of the damage wrought by Oxycontin and and the struggles of addiction, the specific of beauty of Appalachia, as you're saying, and yet it's never didactic. It's never overly moralizing. It's so full of fun and joy and empathy. And it's so beautiful to read while being this tour de force about that region of the world and about its history. And it's like, I think so few authors are are able to pull that off. So I just absolutely loved it. And I actually listened to the audiobook, which is narrated by Charlie Thurston, who has an Appalachian accent. And it's really wonderful to kind of get into the groove of the story with him. So I'd recommend that too. That's so cool that we have the same book. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and also, do you know what's even cooler is I haven't read it yet. So I now have a double reason to read it. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> it's one of those lucky you. I'm so jealous you get to read it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Naomi Klein and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and you can get in touch with us by email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction. In booty shorts. (laughs) 